Just before the episode, I would like to thank all our Patreon members. You guys, the support means the world to me and helps keep this podcast going. And if you haven't signed up for Patreon yet, just so you know, Lindsay from formerly 33% Pulp and I cover a lot of different true crime and history media like The Keepers and the Paradise Lost series, as well as covering some topics that you guys probably wouldn't hear about otherwise. You know, we've covered the I Knew of Japan. We've covered Bernard Pernat, lots of different cases, as well as some surprise and different kinds of content such as crazy sci-fi movies comes up as well. So love if you would check it out. Thank you guys for all the support and allowing me to keep doing this for the past few years. So thank you. And now on to the episode. Just before the episode, I would like to thank our new patrons from December and January. I know I'm a little behind, but do know your support means the world to me and helps keep the podcast going to keep all these great sources for the episodes and just basically doing the bare minimum for the podcast. So thank you to Scott F. for pledging and all the patrons who continue to pledge month after month. I appreciate it so much. And now on to the episode. Okay, we are back with the cult of domesticity with Scott of the many again. Scott of the many has returned from my voyage into history and I bring... Uh, back tales of history love it <laughs> i like that last time it, we, we it took us about a year over a year and now we're like no we're just gonna wait a month and <laughs> record again yeah i'm cool i i think we should just do a another podcast that's just you and i you know me i'm all about more podcasts so i don't have many enough let's do number six or whatever it is no it's great to be back i had so much fun last time this my story that I'm doing with you today is was originally supposed to be our uh, topic, right? Last time? Yeah, I think so. And then we changed our minds. Something else happened. I don't know. I, I will say I did pick sangria out of my selection of wines. So it is appropriate. That fits. That fits. Sangria of, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it means the cup in uh, Latin, I think. And then... Sangre means, means something blood. else. The cup of uh, of blood, or am I just? I might be reciting BS from the Da Vinci Code. On, <laughs> I feel like that's out of from my head. the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I get my real history mixed up with my Dan Brown history. Fair enough. Uh, no, this is sangria of the Aldis. Of the Aldis. Okay. Yes, like burger of the McDonald's. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sangria of the Aldis. Mainly because it is under five dollars, and that's how that I works. like to live my life if it does the job it it's good enough for 2020 it tastes good what more do you want exactly i mean that's tastes good it works it's got a cute owl on it like what there you go it's a win-win-win yes but today oh wait we probably should introduce your your many podcasts first um they are frozen truth they are status pending dead and gone in wyoming and the fine jody podcast so four all very good research heavy episode very intense and it's the opposite of this (laughs) all true crime yes all true crime not very conversational in fact they're all pretty script and they're just investigations of unsolved cases usually in different format so that is what i do when i am not with you yes very well i will say they're very well done so you guys thank you definitely need to check them out thank you very much it's very nice of you to say well i listen to them all they're one of the 200 podcasts I listen to. It's fine. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm somewhere on the list. 
I'm doing fine, guys. It's fine. <laughs> I do not have a problem. <laughs> I definitely am not baking and listening to murder podcasts all the time. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Christmas baking is going to be happening. So it'll be the perfect match of moods. <laughs> that works. If you're not uh, baking, you're killing. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Halfway through, I was like, I got distracted by something out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sorry. baking. I'm probably talking about murder. Yes, that is true. <laughs> From one mess to another, let's talk mm-hmm. about the Spanish. Yes, indeed. That's my topic du jour. What would you like to know about? Th- this is a weird one because um, the book I read, which I will uh, name drop, uh, obviously, but it's pretty darn good. And it was written, seemed like it was written around 2017. So it was really interesting to get the pre-COVID perspective on when they get into could this happen again kind of it was called Pale Rider Laura Spinney oh I think I've heard of that the Spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world which is pretty much the entirety of my knowledge about this topic and I am not an epidemiologist not even remotely close so I might screw this up my usual disclaimer for your show I'll probably screw some of this stuff up leave all Five-star negative reviews for uh, for Courtney. You, you know where to go. Inside joke because of the five-star negative review we were talking about before the show started. But hey, five stars is five stars. Five stars is five stars, yeah. So to the person who reviewed me recently and said, I'm terrible, thank you. But have five stars anyway. But give me five stars anyways. You guys think it hurts my feelings? <laughs> I've had college student review. You can't hurt my feelings. That's right. Because my favorite one of those was... Did not have enough interaction with her to form an opinion. And I was like, you still felt the need to write that. Thank you. <laughs> there is something not uh, uh, about someone who, because you can leave the stars without making a review, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's something about the person that needs to, needs to leave the one star and then tell you why in a non-constructive way. Constructive one stars are fine. Or hey. I'm a big boy. Our emails are available. Shoot me yeah. an email. Not mad sure. about it. Yeah. Anywho, um, podcaster gripe corner. So, World War One, which uh, is Courtney's favorite, definitely uh, the lesser talked about, the redheaded stepchild of American uh, m- world military conflicts, but the one that is more interesting, I believe. It's more than interesting World than World War Two. We all know how I feel about World. So. The First World War is raging in the uh, the Atlantic, really. And the Spanish flu, I guess, uh, let's just start here. Ignore, forget everything you know about the coronavirus. Forget everything you know about infectious disease. You are now a person alive in 1918, because that's what they understood about infectious diseases, which is nothing, almost nothing. They literally had not discovered viruses. At this point, germ theory was a thing, but a very new thing. That's right. So they were aware of bacteria. They didn't really know what it was or how it worked or how it might help or harm people. But germ theory was, uh, as you say, a thing in some parts of the world. And to it was received with mixed reviews, let's just say. Not everybody was sold on the idea that uh, germs are what spread diseases. They certainly didn't know what a virus was, so they had no, they had vaccines, but they weren't vaccines in the sense that we have a COVID vaccine coming today. They were, the concept of making yourself sick to develop immunity was just an infant. It was just brand new. If the best way to think about it is if you've watched John Adams, the miniseries, they 
give the kids smallpox vaccines, which were cutting, like putting a cut on your arm, having an infectious person opening their putt, like the thing. <laughs> Sorry, this is gross. gross. I should have warned you. Um, and then proceeding to like kind of make a little culture and then putting it in you. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what a vaccine is. I, it's a, a very uh, rudimentary vaccine. Yeah. Gross. Not super healthy. But that is the concept of vaccination. Uh, again, was not agreed upon by everybody. But that's the world that we live in in 1918. The first, the first World War, once America becomes involved in it, becomes the super spreader of this. It's an H1N1. It, the Spanish flu is what the bird flu was most recently. And there have been a couple other variations of it since 1918. It's not the coronavirus. It's different. It's a different strand. But the theory is the same. It's a flu, so it spreads from fluids and it's a flu that had become adapted from animals uh, to people so that barrier had been crossed which is how virulent strains of the flu become bad uh, they just adapt and they grow because just as our job is to exist as a species the job of the virus is also to exist and so it's constantly finding better ways to transmit itself from animals to people just to survive just to progress so that's the world of 1918 the spanish flu is not the spanish flu at all it's a it's a terrible name because it is not a spanish flu we'll never know where it came from but the first documented cases are actually american they come from kansas at a military base in kansas and from there Obviously, the war spreads to different parts of the world, and in any which way that this virus could spread, it covered almost the entire planet over three waves, some people say four waves, for a two-year period from March 1918 to March 1920, which is kind of eerie because it's following the same trajectory as the coronavirus. It had three waves, the second of which was by far the biggest that began in August of 1918, very similar to our August that just went by. And along that trajectory, we're coming to the bottom, or we will eventually come to the bottom of the worst of it. And then there's a third wave in the Spanish flu, and some people say a fourth wave. So it just it was eerie to me that we're exactly 100 years later, and it's following exactly the same trajectory as the spanish flu did i thought the spanish flu got the it was a propaganda piece that's why it got the name spanish it was a bit it was called different things all over the world so this same virus was being called different things depending on where you were and at first um contributing partly because of the war it was just your enemies you named it after your enemy like syphilis <laughs> just like yeah um and it wasn't until six months in or so where the Spanish flu, the name was more widely solidified. And that's just what it became known as. And actually, it's a, a studied and debated, I don't know what the word is, uh, policy among health officials as to we got to be very careful what we name these viruses, what we name these things to avoid stigma. I think that's fair because, I mean, Spain definitely probably received a backlash when people talk about it. They don't like it. And I think they've done a pretty good job at like COVID-19 and it was started, they found it in ni like 2019. Right. They're going to name it. It's called the coronavirus because of how it appears under a microscope as opposed to uh, coming from a certain region or there was discussion among the Americans after this happened. Do we name these diseases like, uh, like we name hurricanes? Do we alternate men and women's names? So we have the Courtney 
virus and the Scott virus. And then they thought about numbers. Do we call this the 23 disease? And what they settled on was to give scientists some creativity, but it's considered good practice not to name a disease after a place because it's usually wrong, like the Spanish flu. It became commonly known as that, and it occurred in Spain, but it's not at all from Spain. If anything, it's an American flu. <laughs> and we wouldn't want that, would we? Going into the American century, we don't want it. Can't have that. No, for the purposes of we all know what we're talking about, we'll call it the Spanish flu. But it was definitely not the Spanish flu. As it spread, that first wave was not, throughout the spring, was not too bad. It was kind of like a seasonal flu. The second one was what was extremely detrimental to the world population. And then the third one, third wave, in 1919 is kind of cleaning up whatever's left. And eventually the virus just mutated out and we achieved immunity and that was the end of the epidemic. What made this exceptionally bad, it's hard to tell how much worse this is than say the coronavirus because they didn't know anything like about anything back then. How do we treat this? Doctors would prescribe alcohol. They would prescribe cigarettes tobacco. They would prescribe mercury. They would prescribe things that would make you sicker. They would prescribe, at the time, the greatest the greatest um, resource doctors had available to them was aspirin. Aspirin was a miracle drug. And so naturally, they would prescribe it in large, massive doses and quantity. And if you get, if you intake too much aspirin, you actually drown in your own lungs from aspirin poisoning, poisoning, which was one of the ways that you would die from the Spanish flu. So it, it was theorized relatively recently, like 10 years ago, that some of the cases in the first world were actually made, some non-fatal cases were made fatal because of an over-prescription of aspirin in developed countries. I didn't know that's what aspirin did to you if you took too much. I knew like Tylenol, if you take too much, it affects your liver. But I didn't know that's like, I knew you weren't supposed to take too much of either of them. But damn! I think you probably have to take massive quantities, but they didn't have anything that would cure it because they couldn't cure it. Medicine at the time, and there was no alternative medicine. There were just kind of co-equal routes that you could go, that you could take in your treatment. There was traditional doctors, quote unquote, and then there were holistic doctors, but there was no stigma attached to the holistic and there was no authority given to the traditional. It was just, oh, you're going to go option B, I would go with option A. And it turns out neither of them were really going to be able to help when it came to the Spanish flu. All you could do is hydrate the person and make sure that you nursed them well and so to avoid infection and just hope. Um, it killed, percentage-wise, it killed about 5 to 10% of people who got it, which is high compared to, say, coronavirus. But we have to keep in mind that nobody knew what they were doing. So who's to say that COVID in 1918 wouldn't have had the same or more? Or it's hard to compare the two, which is what I was kind of interested in. But I don't think that we can say, one, the virus itself is more or less deadly when you compare the two. Yeah, it's hard to compare. It's like apples and oranges because you're. we have different treatments. We have different, like, they didn't have hand sanitizer that they... I mean, they did have masks, but like you have to think some people were wearing gloves, but how they how you clean things were kind of different um, and all of that, too. So back then, and diff all over the world, some people understood that some cultures understood that this is spread by person to person contact. But plenty of places around the world thought this was a vengeful God 
punishing them because of how indiscriminate the disease seemed to be. Because just like COVID, the Spanish flu would just devastate some people and it would completely avoid family trees sometimes. So there, there was, it was tempting for people to say um, that they were being, to think that they were being punished uh, for something. And it was interesting to read the stories of like different towns in Europe that later noted uh, like a swath of owls that had showed up that had never showed up before in their town and they would sit in the windowsill waiting for you to die. And in reality, there was no influx of owls. It's just people were looking for omens. And so they noticed the owls were there and they said, this has something to do with X, Y, or Z. Our perception, like a placebo effect of your mind almost, affects this quite a bit when bad stuff happens and we don't understand why. Very much like the Black Death where... The, they would hold processions and they have the, the flagellants would go around and, you know, have whips and like beat themselves and do a procession that way. And yeah, I feeling like it's eventual God is not a new thing <laughs> for humanity. We're like, we don't understand. We did something wrong. If you think about it, the Greeks had a similar <laughs> thing. Keep going back. Anytime there was a plague, very similar thing. We need to appease them. Got to blame somebody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was treated medically in different ways all over the planet. And it was some places it decimated 90% of the population because they just didn't understand what they were dealing with. Um, there were very few places on Earth that didn't get it. The South Pole is literally one. And there are a couple of archipelago island chains that didn't get it. Interestingly, Australia almost didn't really get it because they quarantined. And being even the big island in Australia... Being an island nation, they could successfully do that, but they lifted their maritime quarantine too soon. And so they ended up as a part of kind of the back end of a second wave. But they probably would have been fine. They probably would have survived. The crazy thing is Australia is doing really well now. Yeah. <laughs> Being an island helps. It does in times of uh, pandemic, I guess. What was really interesting to me and definitely never thought it about like this in this way is it affected of the 1.5 billion people on the planet. It affected a third of the population. So 500 million people were infected by this. And there's no way to know that for sure because we didn't know what it was, so they couldn't actually test for it. The way they would test, aside from symptoms, is they would basically have you blow your nose and then they would grow bacteria in a culture from your nose snot. And then they would examine that under a microscope. And if they saw what they thought was the, the, what, what the thing was supposed to look like, they would say, yes, this is a confirmed case, but it turns out what they were looking at occurs very commonly in people, in healthy people. So they had no idea how many people had this. They say the unofficial number is now a third of the population and 5 or 10% of people. So about a million people probably died from it, but there's no way to possibly know what the percentages were. Very much, again, like the Black Death, they said uh, two-thirds of Europe died from it, but there were three different types and done treatment and confirmed cases. Like, how do you know? Especially because in this period, you have better documentation and we have more survivable documentation, but still, you're just like, right. how do you know? Yeah. Um, like the plague, the Black Death, how it would bottleneck the entire population. The same thing sort of happened with the, uh, the Spanish flu in that entire sides of family trees were wiped out. And it's, it's fair to say that most of us would not be here without the Spanish flu because of how it changed trajectories of entire continents and family trees. And for example, just as one 
small contemporary example, Donald Trump would not be president right now because his great, great, I think it was his great, great, great grandfather inherited some real estate, some land um, following the death of somebody from the Spanish flu. And that's what started that family's empire. So without, without the Spanish flu, Donald Trump is going to be doing who knows what today. And he's probably not going to be on The Apprentice and may, may or may not be president. But it's fair to say that if you, if you uh, play that out for yourself and for pretty much everything about society, it's crazy to think about how different it would be if the Spanish flu were more survivable or if it had never occurred at all. That is crazy to think about. But that's what I love about history. The butterfly effect of it. Or just like the flipping of a coin, like one person survives, one person doesn't. It changes the whole course of how history goes. One thing that was different about this that we're not seeing with coronavirus is I, it's hard to tell because of the numbers and because of how they would, would you know, had no medicine. But this one seemed to affect 25 to 45 year olds more than COVID is. And I don't know that we'll ever know why. It could be that we didn't know how to treat it, but it was definitely, it's a different strain of the flu. So um, yeah, it, it might very well have been more deadly, but it definitely um, affected the future more that way because it's going to directly affect, oh, you're going to have orphan children, you're going to have husbands who lose their wives. And so that changes the bloodline, the family tree. One interesting side effect about the orphans, so many kids were left wards of the state or just absorbed by uh, by extended family, that the Spanish flu, if there was any one thing that formalized adoption, it was this. Adoption became legalized in different countries because of the number of children who were orphaned after 1920. You have to think also so many people, like so many young men died during World War One. When that came through, if Let's say your dad died in the war. Your mom then dies because of the flu. That definitely would jack up the number of orphans happening. That, I mean, good that they started making adoption legal because it's better than the previous method of adoption, which was you don't want a kid, leave the kid here. Someone else takes the kid. (laughs) That's not a legal method of adoption. That's just baby swapping. But (laughs) Yeah, and there's all kinds of bad, bad stuff that happens there. Like... The worst that I'll probably get into is, let's just say you're a necrophile. Let's just say you're okay with having sex with dead people. When the Spanish flu comes around, it's kind of Christmas Day. We'll just say that. Question Some though, places, wouldn't you get more infected <laughs> then? Because they're dead of the flu. And- pretty sure. Pretty sure you wouldn't last too okay. long. But <laughs> in some places, they just didn't have the infrastructure to handle the dead bodies. And so what you were to do in some places was when someone died put their feet up in the window so that the authorities could see that there was a dead person in this house. But the backlog became such where eventually people said, I don't want this thing in my house. And they just threw it out the window. So you have piles of dead bodies in the street. Very similar to the plague in that there are just, there are dead things everywhere. You have to also think uh, home funerals were more common then too. So you, funeral homes weren't a thing. And you know, you don't, you can't do the whole funeral process in your home. Cause let me tell you guys, that kitchen table that you inherited from great grandma, <laughs> great, great, great grandma, there are probably bodies on it. You're welcome. Oh my God. That's true. <laughs> do you have nightmares wow. now? <laughs> I will. Grandma laying on a table. 
Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm trying to think of what else I noted from the book. The book was very much like the first two chapters were done with the plague itself, the timeline. And the rest of the book is about the effects and the how it was treated. And, and, and that was really more interesting. I thought it was going to be more like a World War One historial where this battle occurred, this battle occurred. It's not like that at all. It's just the side effects. Um, probably advanced medicine more than any other single event in world history. Because if you think how much more we understand about medicine now in the last hundred years, all of this was in response to the fl the, the flu of 1918. If you, so, you have to because you don't want that to happen again. It probably, you're recovering from war. All of a sudden your population become like crippled by in like a disease that you can't really label or treat. So then people start blaming the government for not being like not doing enough action, not helping them. You don't want to be in that position ever again. I wonder if the CDC was developed around this time. It was as a result of this. Not the current CDC, but the forerunner mm. to the CDC was developed because and initially the doctors didn't want it because they thought it would threaten their business. Um, we're just not very efficient. Human beings, when it comes to learning, we're not very streamlined, but we get there eventually. We're a meandering river. Eventually, Walsh <laughs> will cut off the oxbows and form a straighter path. Well, I mean, just the, the the medical theories, like this this well-meaning, I suppose, doctor decided to do his own clinical study because there was no such thing when it came to, there's certainly no double-blind studies back at this point. He had 21 patients that he thought had the Spanish flu. He gave them all mercury, and because none of them died, he said, aha, I have the, I have the solution. But mercury's arguably worse than the Spanish flu, especially if you're not one of those fatal cases because you go nuts. You think ants are crawling under your skin. So uh, as to, to quote a coin phrase recently, the cure cannot be worse than the disease. Much more true 100 years ago when you're administering mercury to people. I just love until recently, mercury as a treatment was an average solution. So you got syphilis? Mercury. You got this? Mercury. Mercury. Sometimes it was just like... Why in the world? Because it's pretty. <laughs> I it's guess so. pretty. Some people who had it would hallucinate. So they're thinking that maybe the mercury or some other treatment that they were, they would see colors. Like the patients that would come back from a really bad case of Spanish flu would be bored by everything. They would be depressed because their experience of seeing heightened sensations and colors and things while they were sick was pretty groovy. So they didn't want to go back just to the, the sober life, I guess. Did someone use treatment of magic mushrooms? Because that's what that sounds like <laughs> to me. Every... Literally everything you can think of was tried as a treatment. And as today, like when scientists tell you, doctors tell you, you can have that two glasses of red wine. It's for the antioxidants or whatever. Same cherry picking of medical advice would take place back then. If you thought you had it or if you wanted to prevent it and you smoked, well, by God, I got to smoke more. And if you drank, and this is a time when the prohibition movement in America and other places was picking up steam. If I'm sorry, honey, I got a drink. I don't want to get the Spanish flu, so I got to stay lit 24-7. I mean, if you keep drinking, you'll <laughs> never be hungover, and you'll never get the Spanish flu. You'll just be consistently drunk. <laughs> and then you'll get the Spanish flu. In, in terms of what would happen when you got it, most people were not, just like uh, COVID, most people would not die from it. But again, we don't know what the numbers are. It could be more people died in India alone than all of people who died in World War One from 
the Spanish flu. That was the most affected nation. Asia got it bad. Africa got it bad. But different parts of different places got it bad. But when you got it, if you were a fatal case, you didn't want it. You didn't want to be that. Your lungs would expand in your chest to the point where your chest would just protrude, ex- almost explode, and your lungs would fill with blood. So you would drown in your blood. And people oftentimes would kill themselves before that happened to them. And you would turn black. You would turn, you'd first get it at your jawline, these two dimples of dark, and then it would spread to your face. And it would, you could watch as death spread throughout your entire body. And then eventually people would shoot themselves. They would slit their own throats. When children committed suicide, who had it, which they did, It was referred to as they fell out of the building, whereas if you were an adult, it was said that you would jump. But a fatal case of the Spanish flu is not something that you wanted to have. So there, I don't know, is that sounds worse than COVID, but is it because we're not, we don't know how to treat it like at all back then? Or is it just worse? It could very well be worse. Why do we always do this? You and I specifically, we one of us always has one topic and we're just like, this is awful and horrible. <laughs> and I know I started this with the hello to more, but I, I mean, I did have parents eating children. My bad. Um, it happened. But now we did this where like children are committing suicide and people are turning black because, you know, their body's dying. Oh, It's happy fun corn. <laughs> Courtney and Scott's happy fun corner where (laughs) the walls are painted black. (laughs) Well, the black death was not fun either symptom wise. And it was way more deadly, I think. But again, who knows? It was Yeah. Two thirds. Yeah. That's I mean, I feel like that's a good guesstimate based off of what the sources are are available but yeah i think it was like 50 million people died they think of it yeah and again because nobody knew obviously how to treat it how it was spread we didn't know what was happening and it was just god is mad at us um a lot sent a lot of the same here we're a little bit better about it by 1918 but fortunately after this we got real and we figured out some science and some math. Glad I wasn't a part of that because I suck at math. <laughs> so, but even today, I mean, we don't, there are things about COVID we don't know that were mysteries back then for the Spanish flu, too. Um, eugenicists were fond of pointing to some, some cultures and some ethnicities getting this more so than others by simply saying, well, of course they got it. They are uh, in, in America. Italians was a common trope because they would get it. Of course, it wasn't. So much their genetics as much as it was their diet and how close they lived in proximity to each other, et cetera, et cetera. We understand that a lot better now. But even with COVID, we're not 100% sure why certain demographics and certain genders and the whole thing get it more so than uh, than others. It's just back then, 100 years ago, if you were uh, – everything reinforces your existing ideology, including your eugenicist view of, you know – it's real easy to to say because these people look this way. That's why they got the disease worse. I do love the fact that the acceptable whites were not including Italians at this point. Yeah. It's Southern, Southern Europeans were othered. And so they're like, yeah, no wonder why the Italians get it. It's probably because they take care of each other when they're sick and they live closer together. But yeah, eugenics. Uh, it's a topic I hate. But a topic I weirdly found a book of in my great grit <laughs> my yeah, my great grandmother's house. Go figure. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so all those prejudices are probably needless to say. Um, you know, it's just one more piece of quote unquote evidence in your in your arsenal when you want to make an argument for anything. So what people do. 
Um, it's what people did with the cure. It's what they did with the disease. It's how they pointed fingers. Um, during the war effort, you mentioned some of the propaganda. The sides would use the flu because it was raging, and the, the war is how it was, it was spread. It would spread literally as they're fighting in trench warfare on the front lines. They would infect each other with the flu, among other things. And then they would take the flu back to the different towns in Europe and in America. For example, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Boston got it much worse than Chicago did. Um, and that's how it spread. So. The trenches, not only giving you trench foot, but also giving you influenza. <laughs> As if it weren't bad enough to be in, you know, hand-to-hand combat in just the most brutal conditions imaginable, we're going to throw influenza on top of that as a cherry. On top of, prob- I think they had cholera, any diseases that are waterborne, because if the trench is flooded, you just yep. were fucked. And they couldn't tell the difference always between the symptoms of one to the other. Cholera and... Uh, the bubonic plague and uh, was the other big one that was floating around back then. Um, but some oh, of the symptoms typhus? were similar. Typhus, yes. Tuberculosis. And, uh, yes. Things that they had identified but couldn't test for, so they couldn't acutely say this is a case of this or that or the other. So there was a lot of confusion just all over the place. Um, and that, uh, I'm trying to think of what else I might have left off. It, for want of a better phrase, it fizzled out. And after the third and some people say fourth waves, which probably is what's going to happen to us with COVID, um, it seems to be following the same trajectory. We're beating the Black Death because the Black Death took about 20 years to fizzle out. That's true. We're getting better. Hopefully, maybe it can be one year as opposed to two this time around. But there's a lot we don't know about. At the very end of this book, which again is a very well-written book, but it doesn't have the benefit of COVID. COVID. So stuff I never thought about with infectious diseases like bird migrations. It took me like five pages to figure out why she she started this chapter on bird migrations. But the flu comes from animal. It transmutates from from animals and comes in contact with people, and that's how the flu exists. So if bird migrations are changing over a 10-year period because of La Nina or the other one, the opposite, I can't remember the opposite of La Nina. El Nino? Frankie Valley. Yeah, El Nino. Thank you. It's not Frankie Valley. It's El Nino. So girl versus the boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, if birds are migrating differently, then the flu will migrate differently. But just like today, even though we didn't have an airplane yet, even though some of these places in Africa just had canoes or in South America bicycles, the flu would transmit. It just took a little bit longer than it does today, but it would travel. It would transmit as efficiently as it does today with COVID. You have to think uh, like migration and shipping definitely has to impact how quickly it travels because you said Australia didn't get it because they had a maritime ban. Well, if yes. you have ships coming in, that's we know how that's how the Black Plague started. Genoa got a ship in. They didn't quarantine it. We got quarantining from the Black Plague, from the Spanish flu. We got racism and more high tech medical <laughs> things. So, I mean, what are we going to get from this? Yeah. Who knows? TikTok. Um, we got TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> we got TikTok from this one, so we're making progress. Uh, that is essentially the short version of the Spanish flu, which is very uh, fascinating to look into. I'm glad I got to do that topic. And now I'm a germaphobe, so thank you. <laughs> do you want to repeat what book you read again? So if people are interested in learning more. Yes, it is worth the read. It's not too terribly long. Um, and it is called... Pale Rider, Laura Spinney. Very, as historical nonfiction goes, it's it's not too dry. It's dry in spots, but especially because of what's going on with COVID, I'm not sure I would have gotten through that book 
um, but for COVID. But it's super interesting given that we're living almost exactly 100 years later along a parallel track to this event that changed history irrevocably. So if either of these, neither of these events of the plague or the Spanish flu had happened and there wasn't that choke of population, what in the world would the world look like? It'd be totally different. It would be totally different. Well, if you think the Black Death killed a third of Europe's population, so that changed a lot of things. They also had darker humor after it. If you look at the Spanish, okay, between World War One, the Spanish flu, and World War Two, we dropped the world's population significantly. Um, I believe the UK is finally reaching World War One population numbers. So just imagine if we're already facing overpopulation. If this didn't happen, oh my god. And in America, an interesting economic side effect after the Spanish flu was with so many people, quote unquote, out of the way, a fewer people or more, I should say, more people made more money than at any point in history after the Spanish flu. In part, there's a lot going into that post-war, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, and the government intervention. But part of it was, it was like a reset of the country because so many people had died. Definitely a reset of the world like we hadn't seen in the 400 years previous to that. I could definitely see that. I don't know if we're going to get the same effect now, but it would be definitely interesting to see because you see after after these plague, there's definitely a change in the economy. Well, here's an interesting thought too, and this is not in the book, but what if it's supposed to happen? What if every hundred years we're supposed to have a population show? Not, not, not in some, uh, you know, uh, God savior way, but in just some natural ecosystem where we're a part of which is what we are, part of this ecosystem, what if there are not supposed to be in some kind of balance too many of us? And this is what, you know, just like everything is yin and yang and everything is held in balance by some countervening force. We don't have that force. The better we get at surviving, basically. It's just the way the earth, we're trying to restore balance and being like, hey. I don't know about earth and like a spiritual, I mean, people can believe whatever they want. I'm just saying nature has a counterbalance, not as nature as an entity like mother nature, but. um, As Malcolm, uh, Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park said, nature will find a way. I am being very Jeff Goldblum (laughs) right now, aren't I? That's what I was going to say, like. Nature will find a way to even out pretty the scales. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's what I'm thinking. Because, yeah, I, I I could see it. I don't know. I'm not advocating for genocide, but maybe one day we wake up and say Jeffrey Dahmer was the public servant. Just Why do we always get back to genocide when we talk? <laughs> Again. Because it's history. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you want to tell everyone? History is, is just what happens between genocide. <laughs> <laughs> do you really want that attributed to you? History is just the stuff that happens between genocide. <laughs> Which, again, is a new word. But anyways, do you want to tell everybody yes. where to find you? On that note, all my podcasts, please come listen to them. <laughs> Frozen Truth, Status Pending, Dead and Gone in Wyoming, and Find Jody. They're all true crime. Um, they are not pro-genocide. Not a one of them. Just my random thoughts. And... Uh, Leave all five-star negative reviews for Courtney. (laughs) On your podcast, though. Yeah, you can go there and put them. That's fine. It's not going to make any sense to anybody. Like, one star. I'm against genocide. People are going to be like, what? This makes no sense, but okay. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Courtney. We'll be back next week. (laughs) We're going to have a true crime story. I don't think... I'm going to end this. (laughs) Hi, everybody. This is Scott Fuller. Last year, I produced a podcast project on the Amy Robechtel disappearance called Frozen Truth. 
I interviewed some people involved in the case and investigated Amy's disappearance on location right here in Fremont County. Now I'm teaming up with County10.com to bring you a new podcast project. It's called Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Every month we'll be telling the story of a murder or mystery in the Wild West history of this remarkable state. Stay tuned for details. They are coming soon. And we can't wait to bring you Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Look for the launch in the next few weeks. A suspicious suicide. A 54-year-old cold case. A 17-year-old girl who disappeared and whose stepfather was just released from jail. A stabbing in a college party that challenged social and political boundaries. A false confession that nearly landed a standout college football player in jail for the rest of his life. These are the cases we cover on Status Pending, a monthly three-part look into cases which are open, unresolved, or prematurely closed. We bring voices of the victims, their families, and others with expert knowledge of the cases we cover, with the hopes that continuing to shine light on the questions surrounding these cases might one day bring closure. Join us every month for a new chapter in our podcast. Subscribe to Status Pending wherever you listen. For more information, including ways to contact us about future cases you think we should cover, visit statuspending.podbean.com. Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at domestic podcasts and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free (laughs) 